about close to 15 years ago now, Jill and I did a three-week session on marriage. And the core of it was Proverbs 31. And the thing that sort of launched me on the subject was an article by a guy named Curtis Dolan, K-U-R-T-I-S, and it was published on March 21st, 2002, which sort of leads me to date when Jill and I did it. And the title of this thing was The Proverbs 31 Man. And you recognize that Proverbs 31 is several things. First off, it's an alphabetical proverb. So there's 22 verses, and each one starts in alphabetical order with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's designed to be memorized. Most of it is aimed at women, and most people use it for instruction of young women, and for that it is a wonderful resource. But this guy, Dowlin, took a look at it and said, um, wait a minute, if you look at Proverbs, there's very few verses that are pointed at women. Most of them are pointed at men. And his idea is that men are harder to civilize and tame than women are. And one of the things that he mentions is he went back through some crime statistics. And something like 95% of all crimes in the United States are committed by men. And of those 95%, 91% of the men involved in crime are single. So the idea here is that most of Proverbs is aimed at men, and especially single men, because they're the ones that cause most of the trouble. So what he did is he took a look at Proverbs 31 from the perspective of, okay, you've got this list of things that a woman should aspire to, and the man in there is just sort of in the background. You know, it says the heart of her husband safely trusts in her, and her husband rises up and calls her blessed. I mean, there's a husband mentioned in there, but only in about three places. And the more he thought about it, the more he thought, in order for her to do the things that she's doing in Proverbs 31, she has to have a godly man as a husband supporting her. And so he goes through Proverbs, of course, looking at the traditional way, what does it say about women? But he also then looks at what does it say about the man in her life, who is her husband, that enables her to do these things. So I'm going to go through it that way, and I'm going to start in verse 10. I'm not going to do the first nine verses. So let's start in Proverbs 31.10. An excellent wife who can find, she is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. I'm reading, by the way, from the English Standard Version. Some of you may have slightly different uh, translations. So the first thing that we know about this woman is that she's a wife. This is not aimed at single women, and the man involved here is a husband, not a living boyfriend, not somebody who shows up periodically, you know, whenever, keep the sleeping bag rolled up behind the couch, to quote Glenn Campbell. It's her husband. The other thing, sort of background, is what's the first commandment 
that God gives humanity. Be fruitful and multiply. What's the first thing that God says is not good for man to be alone? So the idea of a husband and a wife goes clear back to the first and second chapter of Genesis. And Galen said several weeks ago, and I thought it was a very insightful comment, that the most powerful economic engine known to man is a married couple. And if you think about that, a married couple with both of them doing what they're supposed to be doing is God's answer to poverty, is God's answer to a whole lot of things. So the first thing about this Proverbs 31 is this woman who is being described is a married woman, and she has a husband, which is to say he has married the woman, and he has fathered children with her, and he has hung around for that entire process. And of course, one of the problems we have today is random coupling and the man not hanging around. I don't know whether you all know this, but prior to Lyndon Johnson, the black community in the United States was doing just fine. They had stable families. They were not necessarily as wealthy as similarly situated white communities, but they had stable families. They were solid communities. And then what the Great Society did is broke up the black family. And I can remember because I was in Washington, D.C., listening to NPR as the debates over all this were going on. And the whole thing was, well, we've got to help these poor black children. And they didn't say black, but that's what they meant. But the deal was, if the family accepted welfare, then the husband couldn't be there. In other words, if you had a married family, you didn't qualify for aid for dependent children and all these kinds of programs that were kicked in, which meant that the black woman could make more money from the government without her husband than she could with a stable family, which meant then that black children grew up without fathers, and they came to believe that they didn't matter enough for their dad to stay around and raise them. Terribly destructive, and from that flows most of the black pathology right now in the United States. And the whites are catching up. We're working on catching up here. But the fact of the matter is, men and women will be men and women, and destroying marriage in the black community did not destroy sex in the black community. So you still had men and women getting together and making little children, but you no longer had a stable family. And that's the thing that has led to all sorts of pathologies today. There are lots and lots of families where the children are simply fashion accessories. He has his career, she has her career, and we make enough so that we can get somebody to watch the spawn, and they become fashion accessories. And the thing I want you to notice about Proverbs 31 is that the Proverbs 31 woman is an economic asset to the family. She works. She has money to invest. The husband trusts her to hand out charity. So it is not the case that she's being kept barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. She is, in fact, out there doing different things than her husband. Hers is always from the base of the family. His is outside of the family. Different focus, if you will, but they're both economic assets. And the first thing that it says here is she is precious and more precious than jewels. And, and by the way, that word for jewels is also translated rubies in some of your text. And if you look at uh, Proverbs 3.15, she, wisdom, is more precious than 
jewels or rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Proverbs 8.11. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. And then Proverbs 20.15. There is gold in abundance of costly stones, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. And it's the same word that is often translated as rubies. So the idea here that this woman is as precious as jewels is an indication of the esteem in which her husband holds her. Furthermore, the heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. As we go through here, we'll see that she has a great deal of autonomy. She has money of her own to invest. And later on, she'll buy a field, and she'll plant vineyards, and she'll do all sorts of stuff. Again, it is not the case that she's being kept under anybody's thumb, but she's doing it in the context of a married couple. She has responsibilities for the family. He has responsibilities out in the world. And we'll see that in a minute, those different responsibilities. So the fact is the two of them are on the same sheet of music. His heart trusts in her. In other words, he doesn't have to watch her every minute to see that she isn't going to do something damaging, destructive, or dangerous. He trusts her. And that's how the thing reads off. That's the first thing that gets said here, is the fact that he trusts her. Verse 12, she does him good and not harm all the days of her life. So the idea is all the days of her life, marriage is a lifetime commitment. So all of the days of her life, she is going to do him, as in the family, good and not harm. She's not going to be out there doing destructive things. As marriages get shakier and shakier, we see more and more cases of women doing destructive things. You have these cases where several years ago in Texas, Mother drowned her three children. This is symptomatic of a society that is in the process of breaking down. That when the wife turns against the husband and does damage to the unit instead of doing good to the unit as she was designed to do. Verse 13, she seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. In other words, she's industrious. But again, notice that she's not out there starting a coal mine or she's not out there building a steel mill. She's doing things that are domestic in a sense. Now, she's going to have surplus because the wool and flax that she works with, she is at some point going to turn into sashes or garments that she's going to sell. It's not the case that this is just little crafties that she does at home. No, she's an economic unit. She's producing stuff that can be sold. So the wool and the flax are going to show up later. She is like the ship to the merchant. She brings her food from afar. Well, what that means is she goes into the marketplace or she goes to the next town or whatever in order to get food. Now, there's a corollary to that that goes with the man. And the corollary is the man has constructed an environment where an unaccompanied woman can travel safely. How many places in the Middle East is that not possible? One of the problems that Europe is having with all these unaccompanied Muslim men that are floating in is they see unattached women walking around and they rape them. That's an unattached woman. She's fair game. What this is saying is that the society that the men have created is such that women unaccompanied are safe to go out, to shop, go to the next town and buy stuff, and they don't have to worry about being kidnapped, raped, molested, or any of those kinds of things. Now, there is no perfect society and such things occasionally happens. But the deal here is 
the man's side of this equation is it's his responsibility to set up a social system around it that his wife and his children will be safe in. And that's the man's side of the equation. Verse 15. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She is running a fairly substantial household. The idea of her maidens here, by the way, these are not her daughters. These are servants in the house. She is managing a substantial household. And by the way, in the Middle East, especially in biblical times, even people of fairly modest means would have servants. So the idea of having maidens in her house does not imply that she is exceptionally wealthy, certainly successful. Verse 16, she considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. So she has money to invest. The idea of her buying land, that's a major purchase anywhere. She's the one that makes the decision. She considers a field and buys it. It isn't the case that Hubby has decided, okay, we'll buy that field. You go ahead and take care of the transaction. No, no, she considers the field. She's the one that picks it out. And then she buys it. So she has got a husband that trusts her with significant economic resources. And then she plants a vineyard from there, which is to say she turns that field that she has bought into an economic asset for the family, a productive asset. Verse 17. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. In modern times, you could say she hits the gym. I don't precisely know what that means, but the thing that speaks to me is she keeps herself in shape. Verse 18. She perceived that her merchandise is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. Again, she is prepared. And her merchandise, we're going to see in a minute, so far she's got a vineyard. She is doing weaving with woolen flax, and she will be making garments that she'll be selling. So she is engaged in economic activities, and the stuff that she makes is of good quality. And obviously, by the way, this is aimed at agrarian society uh, 2,500 years ago. There are modern equivalents to all of that. I hope everybody understands that. In other words, it, it is not in fact necessary that everybody have a farm in order to be involved in this. Her lamp does not go out at night. What that says is she is prepared. She has oil in her house so the lamp doesn't go out, which is to say she keeps things stocked, she keeps things ready, and one of the things that be said in a minute is she laughs at the time to come which is to say she is prepared for hard times or she is prepared for the winter or she's prepared for times when it may be economically lean. So her lamp does not go out at night, speaks of preparation. Verse 19, she puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. Again, this talks of industriousness and obviously this is spinning and weaving. It doesn't have to be that. I'll use K as an example. She doesn't spin and weave. But when our children were taking piano lessons, she served as the bookkeeper for the piano teacher and hence got a discount on lessons for our children. So I mean, there are all sorts of things that this can be. It doesn't have to be sitting and spinning. Obviously you need to update this for modern ways of doing things. Verse 20, 
She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. So she's generous. Emma speaks to her husband. One of the things that happens in lots and lots of families, it's not uncommon for the wife to go to church and the husband not to. And one of the things that often happens in a family like that is the husband begrudges an offering. You can go to church if you want to, but I don't give those folks any money. That's not the case here. She, A, has money of her own, but B, her husband is also generous because he approves, in a sense, of her giving to the poor and the needy and, and reaching out to those less fortunate. Verse 21, she is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed in scarlet. And again, this speaks to preparation. She has set things up so that when the snow flies, her household is dressed warmly and good clothes, so forth. By the way, one of the things that as you read this, you could get the idea that she is self-sufficient. She's planted a vineyard. She's selling stuff to the merchant. She's doing all that. And that she is providing for the household and hubby is off doing something else. It's not the case. They are an economic unit. And she certainly contributes to the household, but she's not alone. In other words, the resources she has to buy a field or the resources she has to give charity or the resources she has to buy proper clothing are not limited to the resources she herself generates. She manages the household, is what it says. 22. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. I see that as she keeps a nice house. So the idea that a woman keeps a nice house, that when you come into her house, it's orderly and she has nice things and things are in good repair and all that kind of stuff, that's what this is talking about. She herself keeps herself well. She dresses nicely. So her clothing being fine linen and purple, the language there is wealth, but I think the sense is she pays attention to her appearance and the way she presents herself. 23, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. So her husband is known in the community as a man of some substance. He's an elder. Now, this is talking, by the way, of an established household. By the time a man gets to be an elder, he's probably at least in his 40s. And they've got children and all that kind of thing. So this is not talking about, at this stage, a young bride just starting out. What this does for the young bride is gives her something to shoot for. Shows her what can be done in a well-functioning household so that she doesn't have to flail around and say, what do I do next? She has a roadmap here. So her husband being known in the gates, when he sits among the elders of the land, it indicates that he is a substantial member of the community. He is someone who is valued for his wisdom. So the idea of sitting in the gates among the elders in this society, that's where you would sit and conduct government business, town business. That's where Boaz goes in the book of Ruth. When Boaz wants to redeem Ruth's piece of land, he goes to the gates and he gathers there ten witnesses. And then he presents his case, and he says, all right, you all are my witnesses, so you're my jury, you're my witnesses. 
He then lays out the case uh, with the other kinsman, and the other kinsman decides he really would like to have the land, but he cannot afford to have Ruth. Any number of reasons for that. He may already be married, and never says. But that's all business that is conducted in the gates. So their husband is known in the gates, indicates that he's known in the community. She makes linen garments and sells them and delivers sashes to the merchant. The idea is this is stuff that she can set up and run out of her household. Now she may have maidens that are doing the weaving. She's got a household staff. They may be doing the weaving for her. She may be doing it herself. But the point is her economic activity is centered on the household. And again, we've talked about the fact that her merchandise is profitable. So the stuff she makes is of good quality and is able to be sold at a profit. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. This speaks to character and preparation. And she has also got her household set up so that she doesn't have to worry about the shocks of things to come. When we're going through Proverbs earlier, one of the Proverbs that we read is essentially a good bank account is protection and talked about it in two contexts. If your country is being overrun by Babylonians, a good bank account does you no good. But a good bank account is protection, a strong city, if you will, from the normal ups and downs and shocks of life. So an example I think I use is if you get up in the morning to go to work and you turn the key on your car and the battery is gone, if you got the 50 or 100 bucks in the bank account, you just go buy another battery, no big deal. You lose an hour of your day, that's it. If, however, you don't have a good bank account, you have to put your battery on the credit card, and that puts you in debt by 100 bucks. So now you're behind, and that just can continue to snowball. So the idea of having an economic reserve is a good thing except in the case when you're depending on it to protect you from Babylonians, then it's a bad thing. She doesn't operate in anxiety and fear. She's not anxious. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue, and this speaks to character. And I will suggest to you that a woman with that kind of character has got a husband who has similar character. Because if the husband is one of these nasty, negative, carping guys, she is not going to be herself opening her mouth with kindness. His attitude will permeate the whole house. And the fact that her attitude is wise and kind indicates that his attitude is also wise and kind. And nothing in here says, by the way, that she is an ineffective wife. In fact, it says exactly the opposite. But she's figured out how to get things done that she wants to have done without being a shrew. The power of words, especially in a marriage, is immense. So she has learned the power of positive speech, which is an extremely good lesson. Verse 27. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. She is managing her household. 
and as we learned earlier on, her household is more than just her and her children. She's got servants and people that work in the house, and she herself keeps track of all that and does the things that she's supposed to be doing, but her household runs well because of her. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. One of the things that she has is children. And one of the things that their children have is a father who lives in the house. Now, where do you suppose her children learned to call her blessed? From the father. So one of the things that we do in our house on Shabbat, and we did it while our children were all still around the table, is I would read Proverbs 31 over K, and I would call her blessed in front of the children so that the children understood her value in my eyes and they then would also rise up and call for blessing. The idea is he is setting the tone for the family. He's setting the tone about his relationship with her. He's setting the tone about his relationship with respect to her and the children. One of the things that I'm hoping I'm emphasizing sufficiently is this Proverbs 31 woman is not doing this all by herself. The infrastructure and the support that her husband is providing is critical to her being able to do the things that are listed in this proverb. He, the men in the community, have to create a safe environment where women can go shopping and where women can go out and inspect land and not worry about being taken advantage of, not worried about being attacked. That's all the men's side of this equation. So all this stuff that she's doing is overlaid on a base of what the men have done, and then she dances on top of that base. Love is not an emotion. The way you know I love you is I got up this morning and I went to work. And tomorrow I'm going to do it again. Love is I'm going to do this again tomorrow. And then I'm going to do it again the next day. And then I'm going to do it again the next day. That's what her husband is doing for her. She then reciprocates, and she is also doing the loving thing, if you will, of managing the household and being part of an economic unit that the two of them are working in this together. 29. Now, this is the husband speaking, by the way. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her, colon, quotation mark. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands, let her works praise her in the gates. One of the things that our society does, since it is thoroughly drenched in sex, young men have been conditioned to go after sexy. And don't get me wrong, sexy is a great thing. I mean, God made women really attractive so men would be attracted to them, and conversely. But the point is, when choosing a mate, what you want to do is you want to get past that, and you want to look at character. And what this says is charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, because remember, we have earlier on in the book of Proverbs, the wayward wife, when her husband goes out of town, immediately hits the bars and looks for somebody to pick up. 
and I would suspect that she's probably physically attractive. She's got good bait. So what this is saying is you need to look beyond that because remember we started off with what's your first commandment? Be fruitful and multiply. So biblically the idea of a man and a woman, a husband and a wife is the most important thing that God sets up. And what this list of Proverbs does for you from a man's point of view is you look at somebody that you are considering as a prospect for a mate and you size her up against that description. And if she doesn't match, find somebody else. From a guy's perspective, this then becomes a set of criteria of what you really want to look for in a woman.